0: Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam's social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Mudassar Ahmed. Mudassar is Managing Partner at Unitas Communications Limited a British strategic communications consultancy where he's led on projects for the United Nations, Amnesty International, the NFL, the Arab League, the U.S. State Department, and organization of Islamic Cooperation, OIC, and many other governments, civil society, and business organizations. He also founded and is the president of the Concordia Forum, an annual retreat for senior Western Muslim leaders. In addition, he is president of the John Adams Society, which is the UK's official U.S. State Department International Visitors Leadership Program, IVLP Association. He serves as a director of the European Network of the U.S. State Department, American Alumni, the Ideas Fund, and Faith Forum for London. He is also on advisory boards at IAYP, the U.S. Atlantic Council, and Global Ties U.S., Modessar also recently joined the Office of Transatlantic Leadership Initiatives at the German Marshall Fund as a non-resident fellow with focus on advancing inclusive leadership in Europe and North America. Modessa recently completed a term as an independent advisor on communities to the UK government. He regularly writes and commentates for a variety of international media outlets, including London's Evening Standard, CNN, The Hill, BBC... The Telegraph, Arab News, and Harris. He has also been named as one of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world for three years in a row and amongst the 1,000 most influential Londoners by the evening standard in 2018. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I have to warn you, we are a little slow in the beginning, uh, largely due to the time zone issue. Mudassar had a very busy day. Uh, A few minutes into the interview, he actually asked for a break, which we took, and then things pick up after that. So please be patient with the slow start, but this is truly, truly a fascinating conversation. I am very, very grateful that I had the opportunity to have it, to record it, and to pass it on to all of you. Please enjoy. Mudassar, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure, thank you for having me. Thank you for making the time. So, in no specific order, uh, I have a series of questions I wanted to ask you. And I want to begin with something that is from the personal realm, something that I've heard you mention in the past, not too personal, but I have heard you uh, say repeatedly that you are a big reader and that reading was something that was very important for you, particularly when you were younger. I think at one point I heard you say that you were a ferocious reader. So I wanted to, because I'm a reader as well, and uh, that means a lot to me. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that, about your reading habits. Uh, is this something that's increased or decreased? Uh, why was reading important for you when you were younger, et cetera?
1: Um, so yeah, absolutely, I, I've always been uh, a big reader since the age of about six or seven. Uh, I started off reading comic books. I was very uh, influenced by the likes of Tintin and Asterix. I don't know if these things ever crossed the Atlantic. Sure. Yeah. But, um, um, and they instilled within me a real sense of adventure, which I, I feel like I've carried through. Um, I also read a lot of Islamic history, modern history, politics. And um, you know, the world of books has benefited me in so many different ways and opened up so many different opportunities and, and vistas in my life that it's impossible to pinpoint you know, uh, singular things that it may have impacted. But um, reading has also um, enabled me to pursue and become inspired by various different figures in history, um, not just figures in history, but um, periods in history. Uh, I mean, it's so difficult to pinpoint uh, things that it might have led to, but to answer your question, I have um, I've stopped reading so much in the past two or three years, actually, uh, as much as I used to. It's just a, just finding the time when you're um, in the phase of your life that you're f- focusing on building institutions or companies. Uh, you don't have that much time to read, but um, in in this quarantine phase, I have picked up books again and started reading. Them.
0: Is there? Do you have a favorite genre? or author, or even actually an actual book, or two or three?
1: I have so many favorite books. It wouldn't be so difficult to choose between them. Um, I, I like reading about history, um, a particular, I suppose, particularly Islamic history. Um, I like reading about modern politics, political biographies. Um, I enjoy reading travel, uh, travel narratives, um, satire. I'm just looking at my bookshelf while I'm talking to you. Uh, I also enjoy reading self-help books, um, all sorts of books. So yeah, I have a. I don't read novels as much, um, and fiction. So that's something that I'm trying to change. I used to when I was younger, but um, I just found reality to be so much more fun and stranger.
0: So I. I that's something that I actually I've struggled with. I've I've been for the longest time, averse to reading any fiction. Hmm. And then one of my teachers uh, in, in Egypt actually told me that it's, it, was, it was a very random conversation. And he asked me, he's like, do you read fiction? He's like, out of the blue. And I said, actually, no, I don't. He's like, well, you really need to read fiction because and he's sort of, you know, rattling off all of these reasons. So on his advice, I picked up fiction the last couple of years and have been very, very happy. For the recommendation. So I've found it a great way to expand uh, my creativity. I've also found it to be very helpful in unplugging from, you know, the type of things that you're talking about, you know, institution building, business, you know, building a business, uh, chasing a client, solving problems. Sometimes it's exhausting. Uh, it's exhausting. So you might want to think, you know, for what what it's worth, it might be might be helpful. Um. Do you do you think people I mean we're probably the same age definitely the same generation do you think people that are sort of the generation after us you know english speaking muslims that are the generation after us do you think they they don't read enough or they're reading more or
1: yeah i think i think look we're all reading all the time so i think on their devices Um, they're consuming vast amounts of information, but it's all short form. And it's all kind of articles or tweets. And our attention span has reduced. I don't think they're reading books. I don't think they're even reading as many long form articles as our generation. I I remember having a fascinating conversation with someone, the generation immediately below me, who just said, nobody reads anymore. What do you mean read? Um, that, That could have been a reflective of his personal attention span but i remember that really irking me um and i do feel that the generation below us potentially are not reading as many books as they ought to be and um i'd be interested to know how we can change that i remember actually one of the one of the things that i've noticed is this we consume the way we consume information has changed so we're consuming information in short form more more often now so these days, um, the younger people are, the less information, well, the, the younger people are, the more information they have to process, hence the information they're processing is coming in a bite-sized format. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they're not they don't seem to have the patience to finish texts or books unless it's related to their educational advancement. And that's a worrying trend because it means that we're we're not able to Um, fully immerse ourselves in issues, uh, but also we're inhibiting our ability to be able to compare our experiences to those of generations that have come before us.
0: Yeah, I think I have the same experience and observation with uh, people that are younger, especially because I teach uh, weekly uh, different sort of ages. I also feel, feel that reading is less important but, in a way, in in the secular domain, it seems that there's a push now for people to read more and and to tying that with worldly success. So it's very common you know, for entrepreneurs to talk about the importance of reading or you know the average CEO reads x number of books per month or X number of books per year. and you know, people that are making reading famous and popular, people like Bill Gates, where he has Bill Gates uh, Notes, I believe it is, a website where he, he he talks about blogs about what he reads, and his recent Netflix uh, documentary where uh, there's actually a, a very lovely scene in his library. So, But I kind of feel that we're missing out on that. Or our, our people are not in that trend. It seems that our people are more interested in, I guess mainstream media consumption if you will
1: i i agree that that's i I, I agree with you that's a that's a that's a a a spot on assessment i i don't know what we can do to change that and i think that that um we reflect upon that as a community but absolutely it's a uh it's a diminishing trend i i uh, every single day I'm meeting people that are uh, um, and I, I and here's the thing I don't want to come across as patronizing or you know no but it's just a I know how much I've gained from reading uh, and I know that people's lives will be enriched if they're enriched. and i'm just passionate for people to know that
0: so you mentioned a little bit about mass communications you know, uh, media, online, et cetera. And I know that that's one of the things that we share in common is, is that I, I came from the communication space and you very much are in the communication space. So it would be nice to hear you, your thoughts about the work that you're doing through your company, uh, what type of communications you're involved in and, uh, You know, you've been doing it for longer than I was doing it, so over the last 10, 20 years, what sort of trends are you seeing in strategic communications?
1: Sure. Um, So I started uh, a strategic communications business about 12, 13 years ago now, um, essentially because I wanted to plug what I saw at the time as a lack of strategic professional firms that are operating in the space between the Western world um, and the Muslim world, and plugging that that information gap. Now, we all know that there was a huge gap of understanding between these two worlds, and that gap still persists. But I felt that uh, a market-orientated solution uh, t- towards that would help. So I, um, you know, as a, as a young man, decided that I wanted to spend my life building a firm that addressed that gap. Um, I've been... Um, when I started this work, um, there weren't many people doing the source of communications that I'm doing now. Not, not in, the, you know, particularly. Um, they weren't really going after clients that weren't top tier in the Muslim world. So I think that you had a lot of communications companies that were representing, and I've always represented various governments, or whatever. But there is a layer of clients below that that often need to communicate to the Western world, but don't know how. And I started to develop my business by going after those sorts of clients. Um, I think that there will always be, just like you'll always need lawyers, you'll always need people to communicate, you'll always need accountants, you'll always need certain professional services. And certainly whilst I've built this firm, I've noticed that the need for my work has increased. And it's... It's always it's funny. The more interconnected the world becomes, the more there is a need for us to communicate more coherently because miscommunication leads to so many um, so, so many disasters. And um, I don't know if that kind of answers your question.
0: Yeah, I, I mean I was doing a lot of the work that involved governments. So I, that and and to be fair, it was it was really more like lobbying. For specific issues uh, just another form of lobbying Um, and in addition one of the challenges with that I found is that there it wasn't representative of the Muslim world it was just simply representative of certain interests that governments had at that time for specific issues which is fine which is natural but the type of clients you're talking about you know this is sort of the heart and soul the Muslim street you know if you will and Uh, Yeah, you know, no one is speaking to them. And oftentimes, it it comes across as very rough, not polished, uh, very difficult to communicate across cultures. I think it's very, very important. Uh, Can you give me or give us like an example or two of where you felt, I mean, without divulging, of course, you know, client confidences and things, but where you felt that your type of communication services really made a difference helped so people sort of can understand
1: the impact that that has? Well look uh in the course of my work i've done everything from helping human rights organizations explain their position on on issues to governments to helping uh inter- intergovernmental organizations coordinate action on specific issues um, that threaten the security of of countries to um enabling um, religious services purveyors to, to... Actually, let me start again with that. Sorry, hold on. I feel like I need to get myself a cup of tea. Will <laughs> you wait? To, I'm under-caffeinated.
0: All right. You want to you wanna pause and go get yourself a cup of tea?
1: Yeah, let me get like a, a cup of something. So in...
0: The work that you do, uh, like any sort of service provider, you have to keep uh, confidences and and certain things secret. But in as much that you can share with us, can you give me uh, one, maybe two examples of where your type of strategic communications actually made a profound difference? uh, And were it not for that type of skill set, something worse would have happened or something would have gotten lost?
1: Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. I mean, I I think the thing is that so much of our work is done under NDA uh, or under confidentiality that it's so difficult to talk about it, but I'll try to talk about it in general terms. You know, some of our work has helped um, avoid further conflict between countries. Uh, A lot of our work has helped um, cultures understand one another, where um, help settle disputes help settle arbitrations. Um, A lot of our work has um, impacted the policy of international organizations towards countries. I know I'm talking in very general terms. Sure, sure. um, But we've also done things like um, enabled campaigning organizations to be more clear about their message. And that has led to desirable effects in their campaigning, whether that be human rights campaigning whether that be charitable campaigns um, and of course we've also done a lot of political work where our help has helped you know has meant that a candidate has succeeded to the winning public office uh, our help has helped political parties tune their messaging um, so it's a real wide variety of, of impact and um, one day I'll be able to talk about it in more detail
0: Well, I know some of the work that you do in detail, so I I understand what you're saying. Maybe some of the listeners won't, but I I attest also to... I mean, I have the same problem when I was doing this work as I couldn't talk about it openly for the same reasons, NDA and whatnot. Uh, And I also know that there was tremendous... It's a tremendous need that we have. Now, I want to ask you this specific question. It might be totally just me projecting, but when I was doing this work... I kind of went through two phases. The first phase was, uh, oh my God, the Muslim world uh, doesn't get it. Uh, we have to come in and help them get it and communicate. And then the more time I spent with, uh, in Muslim-majority countries, with Muslim-majority uh, stakeholders, people in government, uh, heads of state, uh, people in intelligence, religious community, etc., I actually started to see it their way. And then I kind of emerged from it like, oh, the West really doesn't get it at all. And we are the ones that are perpetrating this sort of miscommunication or this stereotype. And actually, I kind of got jaded and, and decided this was not, not for me. And, and I left. Mm. Uh, do you, can you sympathize with that? Or do you, maybe you yeah. disagree with that?
1: Yeah, I can. So for instance, one of the issues I'm working on at the moment um, relates to an environmental issue. Um, that the West has decided needs to be addressed in a particular way and there are countries in the global South who, who decided it needs to be implemented in a different way and essentially the balance of power is with the West the scientific argument is actually with the global South
0: huh.
1: and so it's really interesting how actors in the, in the West are deploying science but being hit back with science. So I think what's happening is that um, you often have scenarios where um, you find yourself understanding, appreciating, and admiring some of the thought leadership coming out of these countries, and frustrated that people in the West are not able to see it in a wholesome way. And that's what our job is. Our job is to make actors in the west understand where people in the east or muslim world are coming from and vice versa and yeah often i do of course i mean you know in english in in, in england we would call it going native i mean of course often (laughs) you do you do uh, sympathize with their point of view in fact you have to if they're your client you know to a large extent and actually i've been very lucky Tarek, that in my business i've never ever worked for anyone that i didn't agree with you know or didn't or, or 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 I felt that I was adding value to something that helped humanity as a such you know I I have never worked for nefarious causes I've turned down many opportunities to do so so I always feel like any agenda I'm pushing is an agenda that I can wake up in the morning and feel very comfortable pushing and that's a blessing no it's a
0: it's a tremendous blessing uh, and and you know alhamdulillah I I would agree I, you know I never did anything that I felt embarrassed or compromised by but the challenge that I felt and I continue to feel is that there is this bias. I mean, it's not. I'm not. I'm not saying there's a conspiracy or there's a conspiracy theory, but there is a bias because power and wealth is with the West, and sometimes it's just so frustratingly insurmountable, and and very difficult. Uh, and I do feel I, at the time when I was representing uh, different uh, people in the East or in the Muslim majority world, I I, I did feel sorry for them and, and feel like you know this is really. You know, you kind of are between a rock and a hard place, which only underscores the importance of the work that you're doing. I mean, I think I had other inclinations. Uh, so this issue by itself, I, I don't think caused me to leave. But um, I think you're also, you know, you're better at it than than, than I was. Um, let me ask you. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I'm I a fan of your work, man. I'm a, I'm a fan of your work. <laughs> L- let me ask you, do, do you. Do you have now currently or did you have in the past specifically like religious clients, whether they be religious figures and or institutions?
1: Yes. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. When we um currently. No, C- currently not on our books at the moment. Um, uh, no. Well, it depends what you define as religious, but um You know, for instance, we represent the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. It's not a religious body, but it's a body of Muslim states. Sure. Um, It's actually the
0: largest intra-governmental organization in the world.
1: Yeah, Organization of Muslim States. Um, After the UN. We don't know. We don't have any But in the past, we have worked for um, Islamic conferences, uh, Islamic seminary schools. Uh, In fact, um, we helped a Muslim school... Uh, in Britain, a very prominent Muslim school in Britain, navigate a very tricky scenario. Um, and actually, I we took on a, a case which I, I re- have, have regretted ever since, <laughs> which was to help uh, a, the largest ever uh, mosque project in Europe gain planning permission. And actually, that was a terrible uh, case, because in the end, the mosque never got planning permission. What, what country uh, is this? This is the UK. Okay. Um, and uh, it's the only time, you see, one of the golden rules you'll know, Tariq, is never to become the news yourself. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and the fact that we were hired by these, uh, this mosque made the news. And I've been paying a price for it ever since, actually, because this mosque had a lot of enemies, because, you know, the, it was a very symbolic, massive, multi million dollar project. And against my better judgment, I decided to take them as a client because I'm a big softie for Muslim causes. Um, and of course that's why I started the firm and I thought it'd be wonderful to but the people running it were very, very incompetent, were horribly incompetent. And uh, and they kept shooting them every professional advisory firm that had worked with them, you know, stopped working for them. And I and I had asked others about their experiences and they were terrible. And I, against my better judgment, took on this client. Uh, and that's one of the ones that I regret actually, working for a mosque.
0: And it just it just came down to not being able to get the permit to build. It was as simple as that? Yeah,
1: yeah, but there was a lot of political opposition. There were vested uh, commercial interests because they had a very prime piece of of real estate. Um, It was a very complicated story, but also uh, actually in large part due to their own missteps. You know, they had just systematically succeeded in angering every single ally of theirs.
0: No, we're we're our worst uh, enemy. Yeah, we have a, yeah. Fa- a fabulous way of sabotaging ourselves
1: yeah so um so i've had that that religious client there um yeah i was a uh, I, I have been approached by religious organizations in the muslim world that i have turned down because i became um very uh you know after my experience with these guys unfortunately You know, religious organizations do not understand, often do not understand the need for professional public relations or public affairs. uh, These organizations are often led by individuals that feel that they can do it themselves, and and they're the best PR machine for their organization. Unfortunately, they don't understand that you need professionals and machinery and certain procedures in place to help you get the best out of. You might be the best PR person in the world, but you still need a team and unfortunately a lot of our religious institutions just do not understand that they've been slow behind the curve and as a result they haven't been able to increase their appeal much beyond their core audience frankly
0: yeah i think that's very significant uh, to to pause on because in the in the muslim majority cont- world religion is very much a part of the state a very much part of day-to-day life unlike it is in the west and the fact that You know, you're even having conversations with religious institutions, even if they're inept and they're backwards, and like all of the things that you said, which I agree with. But the fact that you still have these conversations actually is a sign of improvement that they're even entertaining the idea that, okay, we need to find a way to communicate better. We need to find a way to get our message across better. Because in their terms, it kind of appeals to their self interest. You know, they want to be the dominant. Uh, uh, arbitrator or expositor of Islam in their country. So it's within their self-interest to do that
1: well. It is, yeah. But often, uh, yeah, you know, the, the fact that they're so tied in with the state, though, is often a, in many cases, it means that they aren't able to fulfill their potential in a way that they could if they didn't have direction from the state, sure, sure, you no, know, and that inhibits their decision making because it's just reflective of any third world country where bureaucracy inhibits free and open communication. You know, um,
0: and the other factor is speaking about religion in general. Any religion in the modern world itself is a challenge.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: with very ancient and you know sometimes odd positions. It's hard to articulate that when, you know, everything needs to be tweeted out in so many characters and and things like that. Um, so where do you see strategic communications sort of between East and West going? You know, you mentioned a little while ago that it's needed, it's important. Um, do you think that now that the world is more connected, it's even more important or people are starting to get it on their own? Or how do you see sort of the next, let's say, 20, 30 years of that, of this space?
1: Mm, mm. No, it's definitely more important. I think one of the things that we've realized from this COVID crisis is the, the lack of leadership from the United States on the world stage has been particularly jarring. Just yesterday, Trump announced that he would not uh, put money, he'd stop funding the WHO um, and You know, with America retreating um, from its historic role on the world stage, you're going to see a rise in middle-ranking countries. Like, it took Saudi Arabia to convene the G20. It took France to to convene the G7. At this time of unprecedented global crisis, the UN has been so depleted of resources that they haven't been able to step in. And I think in this, you know... Global coordinated action against crises are reassuring to the ordinary person. And, they're re- and when communicated right, it provides a level of assurance that individual governments can't necessarily do by themselves. Um, I think that we're entering a world with competing polities are going to try to um, trying to sell their narrative of human development to um, the global audience. China is already trying to do that. Russia has been doing that for a while. Britain now that it's out of Europe is going to try to sell its own narrative. So it's gonna get very confusing. Um, Everybody's gonna be, and actually it could uh, become quite dangerous if it's not done well. And so the job of communications professionals is partly obviously to, to faithfully communicate whatever it is that that their client wants them to communicate, but also to do it in a way, I feel, that reduces misunderstanding, conflict, and division. And you know, they say that don't blame on on malice that can that 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 don't blame on malice that which can be blamed on incompetence. And often What you find is people incompetently communicating, setting off crises all over the world. And we need communications professionals to ensure there are less misunderstandings, less division, and ultimately less war. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. When I was working in London, uh, I got the sense that there were a lot of shops set up to do strategic communications you know everything from small medium to large how do you uh specifically see yourself fitting a lot of those firms don't exist anymore by the way one one in particular which don't necessarily have to name <laughs> but how do you see yourself fitting in with the larger firm do you do you work with larger firms or is it just sort of you're too niche to to fit in with that larger scheme um well let, well, let me for let me give you uh, why I'm asking this question. In the U.S., yeah. uh, when I tried to sort of think about replicating strategic communications stateside, and I reached out to some of the larger firms, one of the things that I found is that the larger firms were really just an extension of the lobbying efforts for certain governments. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. there there wasn't really any interest, but from for, with these firms to do the type of stuff that you're talking about. It was yeah. really like we're just, we're like a lobbying loophole where we don't like necessarily yeah. have to register yeah. as a lobbyist.
1: So I think a couple of things. One of the things that the scandal in South Africa shows us is that when um, you have large companies that have shareholders that they need to please, they're willing to cut corners and take on riskier and riskier clients. Um, and that puts... Um, you know, anybody that's working with them as a proxy, it puts them under great stress. Um, but in terms of answering your question directly, do I think, do, how would I, do I partner with last year? One of the advantages of being small and nimble is that I have the flexibility to choose my clients, and I really value that. And um, the longer you carry on, um, and if you're really genuine about steering away from doing work that might be very very lucrative at the time but long in the long run could affect you affect your ability to to have integrity frankly um means that sorry i think i've lost my chain of thought what what i'm trying to say is that you might you know we've been tempted to pursue work that You know, might affect our integrity, but might be very lucrative. But if we were to do that, we would be shooting ourselves in the foot financially in the long run. Um, So we've been very careful not to take on projects that might promote, for instance, war or negativity or too much attack based type of work. Um, And it's those firms, Tarek, the ones that do that kind of work that have a short lifespan. Sure. I mean, the, the, the
0: testament to what you're saying is that you're still standing. And many of these firms are not. Hmm. Um, did you build uh, Unitas uh, from the ground up? Yeah. yeah. So, yes, I did. So you are you know, you're another crazy entrepreneur uh, like me. You know, they say that starting a business is like jumping off of a cliff and, and building a plane on the way down. I don't yes. know if, if you can sympathize sympathize with that or not. But what i want, one of the things I, I want to ask you, uh, because this is personal for me, is have have there been any teachings, lessons, principles from Islam that have helped you in actually building the company? Mm. Either in the very beginning or like on a continual basis? Because well, a lot we of
1: times- start, We, we so, started, the look, before I started the company, I was an activist, and well, I was an activist, I was in the media, but fundamentally, I was driven by this strong urge to help people understand, I would say Western Muslims or Muslim communities and, and their desires and aspirations, and actually that's a thread that runs through through my life. You know, I have never stopped doing that. And even in my company, as I built this company, we were very 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 clear, me and my partner from the outset, that we would help. Uh, we, we would our mission was to help the Islamic world and Western world be we better understood amongst each other, to bridge these divides and to bridge gaps, and that's what we were going to do as a business. And we were hopefully going to make money on the way, but we were also going never going to say no to small Muslim clients that couldn't afford us. We were always going to go out of our way to help people, and we were going to incubate as many Muslim projects as we can. So it's as a direct result of my business that I've been able to incubate many, many, many Muslim projects. Um, we incubated something called the Concordia Forum, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but the Concordia Forum was heavily reliant on my business, and, some, and somewhat still is, but not not so much. But certainly in its early days, five, six, seven years, it was heavily reliant on the resources that my business was pumping into it to keep it running. Um, we, we also incubated a, a Muslim um, artists' network. I ran a campaign to raise money after terror attacks in the UK that my business ran. There's so many things I was, I've been able to do to help the Muslim community because of my business. And actually, my heart has always been in those things. The business is a way of making money to basically satisfy my communal objectives. I mean, I know good entrepreneurs don't say that, but I'm always set out to try to solve a problem, you know? And actually, Tarek, once this call is over, it's just occurred to me that um, I want to speak to you about another business I'm setting up, I can't believe I haven't spoken to you about yet.
0: All right, so.
1: I can't believe I haven't spoken to you about it. <laughs> you about, I can't believe I haven't spoken to you about it. It's been on my mind for the past month and I've spoken to so many other imams and I can't believe I haven't spoken well, to you about
0: now, it. now that we have this COVID quarantine, we have all the time in the world. So we, we can, yes. we'll, we'll, we'll jump on a, a private call afterwards. Y- you mentioned Concordia. Uh, so that definitely is one of the things I wanted to speak to you about. I mean, I think people might know you more as, you know, the, the convener, the founder uh, of Concordia more than they do Unitas. I mean, I began with Unitas because that, that's actually how I met you, yeah. sort of as a, as a fellow Muslim spinster. Um, but uh, Concordia, I've had the pleasure of attending uh, both a large event and a couple of medium to smaller events. Uh, actually, me and my wife. Uh, so, and, and the reason I mentioned me and my wife is that You know, when you're married and you have kids, you always look for when are you going to get alone time in the calendar. So this was actually one of, at the time when we met in Switzerland a couple of years ago, this was one of the few times that my wife and I actually were able to vacation together. So it it has a double impact for me, a a very positive memory. Uh, I I had, you know, nothing but positive, uh, a positive set of experiences. At Concordia, with the exception of the scavenger hunt, which maybe we'll talk about a little later, I still have some some gripes about the scavenger hunt. Um, but rather than me, you know, preach on about Concordia, it would be helpful if you could tell us what what is Concordia uh, and what is it setting out to do. And you know, as if like no one's really heard. I don't think a lot of my listeners have heard of Concordia.
1: Look, fundamentally, Concordia, at its heart has been all about trying to build trust unite and bring a sense of purpose to the various tribes of muslims that exist in the west and it started off simply as a as a vehicle to build trust amongst the diverse group of muslims that exist i mean i don't like using the word unity that much but a lot of people they they relate to that you know and 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 um You know, it is about uniting various Muslims from different backgrounds, bringing them together across different sects, bringing them together across different professions, bringing them together across uh, various ethnicities. There is no platform in the Western Muslim Ummah sphere that does this, what what we do, which is bringing all these people together. And I think there is some barakah in that. We started off, sometimes I think we started off with 30 people in a two-star venue in the middle of Spain. Alhamdulillah now, 12 years later, you know, we, we've been blessed that there is some barraca in the air because certainly we're not responsible. We cannot, no one person or no group of people can be responsible for the success of it. It's been fairly su- successful in the sense that it has spawned lots of initiatives, created lots of friendships, opened up lots of opportunities, and through our annual retreat, created lots of um, avenues for people to engage with the pressing issues of the day. Um, and I think our success lies in the fact that we keep on growing, and not only do we keep on growing, the kind of people that we attract—Tarek um, is a case in point—are uh, of a very high caliber, and, and increasingly so. So, I, I, I don't know if I've kind of answered your questions. I've gone kind off on a tangent, but
0: uh, how many how many meetings uh, do you convene a year?
1: So, the Concordia Forum is essentially. A transatlantic organisation that brings together senior media, political, and corporate figures for an annual retreat. Primarily, Uh, with this annual retreat is held in the fall every year and rotates between Europe and North America. In addition to that retreat, we do other smaller events too. So we do a yearly wellness retreat that's aimed at uh, uh, helping many of our, our busy members to relax, to connect, to meditate, to practice yoga, have mindfulness. And to, and to reconnect with themselves, over a period of about three or four days. Um, we also do smaller conference gatherings. We did a, an event uh, at, 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 on the sidelines of Unger. We're hoping to do that again today, uh, this year, if UNGA happens. Um, we also do smaller convenings uh, in London, Brussels, Berlin, New York, and Washington all the time. Uh, but of course, our main retreat uh, attracts around 200 people. Uh, and is uh, strictly limited to western muslims um and we we take great care to make that as diverse as possible um and we don't take funding from any uh kind of governmental organizations or we do not we have any links to any any governments or particular sectarian tendencies we're truly independent in that sense and I think we're very much a Western Muslim creation. I think that's important. Um, most Western Muslim institutions have some kind of umbilical cord to, and rightly or wrongly, I mean, I'm not drawing judgment, but they have some kind of cord to ideological understandings of Islam um, in, in in the Eastern world. So, so you know, they're inspired by be it Moralvism, be it Brotherhood, you know, be it, um, turkish interpretations of islam most of these most of the institutions have that kind of link whereas the concordia forum not only is espousing you could argue in in some form a new more broader more inclusive vision than any of these individual ideologies but in and of itself is a very western muslim construct uh,
0: is it true that it's by invite only
1: yes um uh, it is yeah and and um, can you
0: explain sort of the, the rationale behind that and
1: yeah absolutely I, I, I it's by invitation only as are, as are you know many other things in life worth doing um but it's certainly not exclusionary um we we are uh, committed to not to committed to maintaining the delicate balance and mosaic um so because we have limited spaces we have to make sure that we're filling the right quotas and uh, enabling the right kind of diversity to thrive.
0: So if somebody's interested in Concordia, where, where can they go to? They
1: can apply through our website. So they apply through our website. We have a nomination committee. The nomination committee looks over their application. Um, if, uh, if, they, if they pass the application, they get sent an invitation to join. Um, and uh, that's how we maintain our diversity. We we are now oversubscribed um, often. Um,
0: so on the diversity, one of the things that struck me when I attended, uh, the first event I attended was the annual retreat. Uh, our year was um, sort of late summer, I think, in, in Switzerland, mm. um, which was kind of an odd place to be, but, you know, that's a... Uh, Neither here nor there. But one of the the things that, that struck me was, and I do a lot of Muslim events throughout the year. And whenever I hear Muslim event, my expectation is that it's something that's going to be more on a conservative side. And, you know, there'll be like segregation between men and women. And it's sort of, quote unquote, religious. Like the point of being there is there's like some kind of like religious event it's like a celebration of ramadan or it's a celebration of the quran or it's a cele- something like something like that but with concordia i actually felt more natural because we're all muslim uh no one necessarily knows sort of the level of everybody's practice uh but it, being muslim was was like i don't want to say secondary because that sounds derogatory but it was it was a background to the professional skills that we bring and as a matter of fact that's how I carry myself most of the day every day throughout the year anyway so I felt very natural it felt very natural for me I was like well this is how I am all the time most of the time except you know maybe like in Joma or something like that where I'm giving the sermon so I actually appreciated that a lot and it it took a lot of pressure off of The ideological problems that oftentimes I am confronted with When we have a quote unquote Muslim conference So it wasn't about solving ideological problems It was about introducing I remember there was one session we attended uh, Muslim startups So everybody got like 5 minutes, 7 minutes to pitch their new project And get feedback from the audience Like that was awesome That was so awesome I have like a notebook full of ideas just from that session about, first of all, feeling, okay, I'm not alone in these struggles uh, being an entrepreneur. Or these are amazing ideas. I connected with these people on social media. Some of them I'm still in touch with till today. Uh, but we're all like on the same team. In other words, we're all Muslim. So we all understand that. So we're there to support each other. So I just wanted to highlight sort of that was my initial experience. I mean, that was, I think I told you, I don't know if you remember. But I, of all groups that I've been a part of, I feel the most comfortable with this Concordia group. Just very naturally I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, and then you've done a lot of smaller things uh, so i I've attended a couple of the meetups in washington d c uh, looking forward to doing this thing in new york if if uh, by September October I think Ung is in September right usually in september um, how many how many people do you, would you say if you could say this are a part of the Concordia family
1: Probably, um Around seven eight hundred, in total, between seven and eight hundred.
0: And you said you started. You were about twenty thirty. Yeah. Okay, so a decade later, you go from twenty thirty to to almost a thousand.
1: Yeah. 1, yeah. Um, and these are, I suppose, people that you would. Most of them, are people that you would identify as leaders, uh, in either in their chosen profession, or in the Muslim community more broadly. So when I, when I was
0: there, <clears throat> I got the sense that the, how do you state this delicately, the, um, uh, well, let, let me actually backtrack what I was going to say. There is a, a, an assumption, I think, with some people that the more successful you are from a worldly point of view, the less religious you are, whatever those two words success and religious mean. And vice versa, the more religious you are, the less successful you'll be. Well, wh- wh- how would you react to that statement? Because I have a, I have a personal, I have a big problem with that statement and that dichotomy. Yeah,
1: yeah. I have a problem with that too. I, I, I... Look... Um... The problem is that are uh, unfortunately in the Western world, um being religiously Muslim is not a brand that people feel will give them worldly success. Let me explain what I mean. So if you're um people often will more readily um identify with other religious faith groups because it might be might give them a perceived advantage in worldly success in certain industries it might open up certain networks it might open up certain forms of capital for them and because these communities have a reputation for being successful communities whereas being muslim does not have a reputation for bringing worldly success now if you look at the way islam um, came onto the world scene being muslim in the early days was very much about obviously Faith practice and self-control and religion, but also it was about worldly success. Being Muslim meant that you were cool. It meant that you were on the cutting edge of technological research. It meant that you could get rich. And it also meant that you were helping to build a better world. Being Muslim today, unfortunately, does not have the same connotations. Being Muslim today means that you're being oppressed in India, China, Burma, you name it, right? Uh, Europe. Um, you're being maligned, whatever. So when we're living in this macro context where we're being made to feel that being Muslim is not, you know, leads to to worldly oppression, then it's not surprising that so many people play down their religiousness. Uh, Now, that being said, um, I'm quite upset about that fact, you know, as a Muslim, because I feel like one shouldn't have to do that. And um, part of... The thinking behind Concordia is to show that there is a space where Muslims can be successful together, and that being part of being Muslim does mean that you're part of something bigger, successful, and ultimately inspiring. Which is why, when a lot of people come to Concordia, they feel inspired because they view Muslims in a and their own community and themselves in a different light.
0: Exactly. I'm glad you, you stated it that way. I mean, you're right. In the, in the past, being Muslim was like being cool. And uh, most of the, the books of history will attest to that's how Islam spread It's just that there are these like sharp dressed, super successful you know, people holding this like rosary in their hands and like, oh, who are these awesome people? I want to be like them. And, you know, oh, I'm a Muslim. Well, now it's the exact opposite. But the reason I mention it that way is that when I went... When at the Concordia uh, retreat that I went to, uh, it was my first time, so I don't really have a, a, a test forum to, to compare it to, but people that have been veterans were telling me, we usually don't have this many quote-unquote religious figures. I think there was like one or two imams there. Now, again, I don't know what a religious figure is or, or how you you know define it. I think we had Jum'a like on like a hilltop and there was a British imam who was absolutely hilarious. I mean, unbelievably hilarious. Um, But so I got, so for me, when I went, it was, I felt just the right amount of dose of Islam. In other words, you know, Friday came, we prayed Friday. Uh, Everyone was respectful. Um, You know, we're all traveling. So whenever you needed to pray, you just went back to your room to pray. But that's, you know, we weren't there to like learn, the fiqh of wudu and inheritance. You know, We were there, like you said, to be inspired. We were there for another purpose. So do you think, was that a correct statement that that was a, a unique Concordia forum, that specific one that I attended?
1: Unique in the sense-
0: That there were like more quote unquote religious figures or whatever that word means?
1: I don't know. I don't know because I, I it depends what you mean by religious figures. Um, I guess we there were like I, one or two imams. <laughs> we've always had, you know, one or two or three or four imams. Um, um, we've always had people of people that are um, religious services purveyors. Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay, so maybe it was just that person's sort of opinion. Yeah. Have, how, are there businesses that have emerged from the collaborations at uh, Concordia?
1: Yes, many. Yeah, many businesses. Um, many businesses have emerged. Um, uh, that we had uh, in the early days, we had a uh, a uh, what was it again? A halal food supermarket startup that emerged. We've had lots of Concordians invest in each other's businesses. Um, a group of Concordians got together and invested in a major uh, media production house in the United States, one of the biggest and most well-known, um, based in Hollywood. Um, Concordians have uh, done joint ventures together. Yeah, lots of lots of cool business uh, businesses have, have, have taken off, and uh, people have loaned each other business capital. People have invested in each other, and that will only increase over time.
0: Inshallah. Inshallah. So one of the things you mentioned in describing Concordia is you mentioned the wellness retreat. I wanted to speak to you a little bit about that. So last year uh, I had the you know pleasure of attending this what you call the Sukoon retreat and it has its own website. I'll I'll make sure that the link is in the uh, notes of this episode. Mindfulness is is one of the focus areas that I have on the entire uh, Making Sense of Islam podcast at, or or website actually. I think it's very important and I thought you could tell us a little bit about the genesis of that. You know, why did you decide to add this component to Concordia? And uh, you attended the, the retreat as well. I mean, I'd love to give my feedback, but I'd like to hear yours as well. How did you think it went? And um, you know, what are the plans for that specifically moving forward?
1: Um, wellness, mindfulness, and a sense of peace have been at the heart of the human endeavor ever since humans have been around. And and, and, and the the stress and the pace of modern life has seen a huge rise in the the wellness and lifestyle industry. And um, as someone who has a pretty stressful job, that that means that I travel a lot and manage teams on on various continents, I found it um, very difficult often to to de-stress adequately. So that led me to, to explore some of what the wellness industry had to offer. So I started attending various retreats. I um, went to a retreat in um, in Spain. I went to a retreat in Germany. I started attending these retreats. Now, whenever I attended one of these retreats, I found that they inevitably had some kind of ideological framework. Now, they often wouldn't push that ideological framework down your throat, but it was obvious that they were following one. So, for instance you know, one of, you know, they'd either be Ayurvedic, which is Indian, or Buddhist, or, you know, Christian. I went to one that was, was, you know, once you got there and you entered your room, they had a small leaflet saying that although we welcome everyone, we do follow Christian principles and we don't expect you to become Christian, but our wellness is rooted in Christianity. Um, so I, I found that intriguing and it got me thinking that we do need, you know, I, I, I'm a Muslim and my concept of wellness is rooted in my Islam, and it is possible to marry those two concepts. In fact, it's critical that we are able to introduce concepts of wellness into our understanding of religion. Um, and that led me to, to setting up the Sakoon Retreat as a um, place where we can explore modern wellness techniques in an islamic framework so how the
0: the we were like the guinea pigs like the test group there weren't that many of us there was one uh mother daughter pair that were not like with it at all they were like really kind of they were really raining on our parade we were like having a good time singing and you know doing tai chi barefoot in the morning and you know we we we're, were having a, a grand old time so we just exclude them for a moment because i, I just think they just, it wasn't for them. Uh, what was the reaction of the participants?
1: I have to say that it was pretty transformative for most people that attended. I was amazed at um, how, I, 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 how everyone felt a sense of peace, tranquility, and how it impacted people. I can, I, as you may remember, I skipped the first two days. I, unfortunately, I had a, a business engagement that I just couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't get out of. And um, when I arrived on the retreat, I was just struck with um, the the tranquility that I saw amongst the people around me. And um, uh, we had nothing but good feedback. In fact, we have a video about it as well, which we will share.
0: Yes, and that video was actually all shot on iPhone, by the way. Yes,
1: it was all shot on iPhone. So I think we, you know, we all know we need to do this. And... It's just incredible how few of us make out the time to do it. It is, it is incredible. I think people should do something like this at least once a year, if not twice a year. So one of the th- one
0: of the things I feel about mindfulness wellness is that I agree with you that a lot of things that are out there it is it is an industry, unfortunately. So there are people you know trying to make money out of it, and when you get caught up in that, I've, I have attended retreats and you know things like you not not maybe as many as you but i've definitely been there and the it is so blatant like the minute you walk over that threshold you know you are part of another ideology philosophy which is fine i mean you know as a as a muslim living in the west you know you're used to being a minority and coexisting with all this other stuff but when something is so personal as like how i feel like i'll i'll never forget we were doing this role playing where i was the the you know i i was chosen to do the role playing. And I was narrating like some kind of problem I have with a sibling. And the facilitator was uh, trying to coach me through it. I don't know, this was probably before you arrived. And then (laughs) all all of the participants, like I said something that like, I can't do that because it involves my mom. And the facilitator's like, well, you know, what do you mean? And, and then everyone's like, oh, you don't understand, you know, because, you know, we're Muslim and, you know, mom is mom. And so everyone understood what I was saying, but the facilitator didn't quite get it because it's just part of my worldview. You know, there are certain things that I just can't do. Uh, I can't talk to my mom a certain way or my sibling or something like that. So what I appreciated about it is that, the the first of all, the facilitators were very flexible uh, and worked with us. But I appreciated that the participants, we all we all shared that same ideology, background, you know, which is Islam. And therefore, we were very comfortable. We were very comfortable sharing. Like, I never go to these secular things. I never share. And I never want to be picked on. And I never want to, like, talk in front of the group. Because I was like, you know, no one's going to understand. But at, at Sukun, I felt the exact opposite. I felt very, very comfortable, you know, being myself, talking about it. And look, man, to be honest, even till now, it's been over a year, the effects of that are still with me. Uh, It was transformative. um, And I'm very excited to see where it's going to go. Now, one of the things I did think about was what I ended up doing. I mean, I went as just a participant, but because there were a couple of people that were sort of, you know, naysayers, I like reactionary i would just like jump in oh you know that's just like this hadith that says such and such like i remember one time they said you know you we're going to be silent we're going to be silent like the whole day until like dinner i i think actually it was that day that you arrived and a lot of people were very upset by that you know so i started like you know mentioning all of these hadith about the problems of the tongue and like how being silent is good and and when i said that people are like oh yeah yeah you know it's actually like a, a good thing so i think that that some people will need that, you know, they'll need that like bridge for them to, to hear that, no, this is part of like our faith tradition. You know, these techniques are, are timeless, you know, they, they even go before Islam, but they're affirmed by Islam. And these are the tools that we need to have, you know, a healthy mind and, and body and, and spirit. Uh, that was the only sort of feedback that I had is I think a lot more people are going to need that for them to feel more comfortable.
1: Yeah, that, that's um, that's very good feedback. I um, uh, it, it requires a mindset change, Tarek. You know, and it's very difficult. I, I I don't know how we're going to get this message across to the masses. I almost feel like we need um, someone to publicly marry these concepts, Islam and wellness, in a more thorough way, in a more determined way. I I think bloggers and certain people are doing that. It's still, it needs to be accessible though. You know, it's not accessible, that's the problem, right? Um, People are doing it, but it's very niche, either ethnically or religiously. You need it to be a little bit universalist, almost like Rumi, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, on Rumi, I mean, one of the things that people I think respond to, if they respond favorably to wellness and mindfulness, is they'll say, well, you know, Islam has uh, tasawwuf and that's what, you know, Sufism is about. Which I would agree with that statement, but the, the challenge there is that that word Sufism itself will mean a thousand and one things to a thousand and one Muslims. Yeah. And then you get into this like tribal, which, you know, tariqa are you in and which tariqa are you in? And, and we're, we're, we're more lo- looking at this like, well, we all need this. This is, this is beyond that. that that specific issue, like I have my own path, my own spiritual path, but that doesn't preclude me from benefiting from something like this, which really, really was was totally helpful. So I agree with you. It has to be universalist, and 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 hopefully we can we can um, solve this problem together because I think it's so needed, especially in in the world that we live in, in which we are just sort of consuming so much you know, consuming, 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 and not really thinking about the consumption, What's, what is it doing to our body and our soul and things like that. I think that's wonderful. By the way, I met, I met a, shortly after Sukun, I met um, a Zen uh, priest in the Washington, D.C. area that actually has a retreat center not too far away from, from Washington, D.C. And mm-hmm. I had mentioned Sukun to him, and, you know, he said that they would be more than willing to, to make their place available.
1: How big is the place? How many people does it take?
0: Uh, I, think, I think it would, I would say it was half the size of the, of the location that we had the first Suk- Sukun, which was sort of in, in Devon in the countryside in, in England, uh, but about, about half that size. But, but even still, we were like a small fraction of the inhabitants of the retreat center in, in, in England. In other words, we, we probably were only like 10 to 20% capacity so it probably could take a 100 to 200 people i would say i mean i have to confirm with him and dig out his contacts but
1: have you actually been to did you go to the place i did not
0: unfortunately i did not get a chance to go so that that's the next on the next on the, well, next
1: time i'm in dc let's go together
0: yeah and if you're thinking of you know concordia the forum exchanging between europe and north america yeah. i think it's also the Sukun retreat which is a little bit easier to, to, to conduct. I think we, we should be thinking about, you know, North America as well as Europe. Maybe it happens twice a year.
1: Well, well, absolutely. Maybe we can do that sooner rather than later. Do you want to send me the website for this place?
0: Yeah. So I'll dig out the guy's card. So after we, we close, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. So, um, just one, I had one like sort of last, uh, oh. personal question I wanted to ask you. Um, Last time I saw you, uh, you had acquired this v- beautiful the, the first uh, English translation of the Quran, and uh, which you know I'm I'm like I totally nerded out when I when I saw that and you know I'm still excited just even mentioning it. And you had told me that one of your new hobbies is to collect uh, Islamic art artifacts, etc. And I wanted to know... Unfortunately, it was in a public setting, so I actually didn't get to ask you this. So I'm asking you for completely personal reasons. If you could tell me a little bit more about that interest, how it developed, what kind of you know pieces that you have that you wouldn't mind sharing with us.
1: Yeah. Um, so this... It grew slowly. Um, I... When my late father passed away, he had some antique books. He had a particular interest in astrology. And... Um, I inherited those books and a couple of them are quite old one is 250 years old and one was 400 years old and um, just kind of held on to them and um, they're in in English? they're in English yeah Okay. Uh, and a few years ago uh, English Latin and one in French I think so a few years ago I took them to a bookstore antiquarian bookseller just to get them valued and and get some more advice on how to care for them. And um, I got talking to the to the guy um, who owned the store, and um, just out of curiosity, I asked him if he had any Qur'ans or anything about Islam. We got talking, he showed me a Qur'an, I bought it, and then that's how that started. So then I started initially connecting Qur'ans. I have the oldest ever English uh, version, which was translated out of French, of the Quran, and then I also have the oldest ever English translation, from directly from Arabic, um, and I have the oldest French translation, um, Latin, um, and I have a bunch of other old books: uh, Ottoman Qurans, Persian Qurans, Mughal Qurans, Chinese Qurans. Um, Moroccan Qurans. so you know I just kind of started buying Qur'ans. then um, I, I expanded more broadly and now I have a pretty broad uh, collection of, of various bits and pieces everything from furniture to paintings to photographs I'm just looking around my home at, <laughs> to shields to all sorts of things um, and I guess the, to, to answer your question why did I start doing this well, Everybody knows about Christie's and Bonhams and Sotheby's. You know the top tier of antiquarian collectors, and a lot—and that is, a, in a way, saturated space. A lot of very, very wealthy Muslims are collecting that stuff. You know, and they're sitting at in the homes of private collectors in the Gulf. Frankly, often gathering dust. But people don't know that under that layer is a massive layer of auctioneers. And there's so much Islamic material out there that no one's buying. <laughs> for me, it's, it's just about preserving this stuff. And um, I had no other motive in mind than to preserve this history. One of the things that have frustrated me for a very long time is that we don't have in the United States, in fact, in any Western country, a collection of modern Muslim history or a museum of modern Muslim history. One of the great pleasures in life I derive is whenever I go, literally, whenever I go to a major American town, I visit its Jewish museum. And every single town has one. And they're beautiful pieces of history. Philadelphia has a particularly nice one, right opposite Liberty Bell. It's my favorite so far. But Chicago has one, LA has one. And over there, actually, you know, Jewish history in America doesn't really stretch back substantially um but most of that stuff isn't that old that they have but they look after it they they value it and they showcase it and they learn from it and i've always dreamed of of seeing museums of of muslim heritage pop up across the west there isn't a single one there isn't a single one the closest we have i think there's something in mississippi the, but I don't think that's, that's modern Muslim heritage. And obviously, we have wings in museums. So here in Britain, the British Museum has an Islamic wing, but it's all stuff from like the Ottoman Empire. And so um, for me, it was really about um, preserving this stuff. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I honestly don't. Maybe I'll end up opening a museum. Who knows? Watch this space. So
0: on that, Mudassar, there is a Muslim American Heritage Museum in D.C., a very small one, yes. Yeah, a small yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's a start. Um, but uh, so offline, if you could send me some websites of uh, the bookstores that you're using, because you know, actually in London, you're very well placed. There's a lot more antique shops than there are in the in the United States. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Uh, I yeah, like antiques cool. as well. But I, I so when I when I go to London, that's always one of the first things I do is I go to the antique stores and, and check. we will go out. together. Yeah, I, 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 love, I love that stuff. I mean, I've have, I have seen some pretty... I mean, the stuff I saw was the more the higher-end things, but, you know, like Mamluk weaponry and, you know, things that are like 50,000 pounds and up. I mean, you know, I was just, I'm just, like, looking just to enjoy.
1: Well, I'll, I'll take you to the more affordable places, you know, which still has all that stuff, you know?
0: Yeah, so that's interesting that you mentioned it. So I think when, when I hear antiques, I think astronomic. You know, like a leaf of a book that goes for, like, a million dollars, you know? Yeah. Um,
1: this is a perception that 's stuck in our minds, but there 's a whole world out there that 's not that expensive you know mm. that is affordable for most people, and we 're not developing that market if that makes any sense you know sure and we need to um, I, I, and if I would love for more people to get involved in this in fact i 've mentored two or three people from within Concordia who uh, actually I showcased a lot of my collection um, uh, on, on we're doing these um, weekly Concordia Zoom calls so I showcased quite a bit of my collection on that I might do another one I might do another showcase yeah I this. was going to
0: say it sounds like a business opportunity for, for Concordians to get behind
1: well it's not it's not necessarily business, but I just I would love to to for, for, for most of us now we're, um, to, to start collecting this stuff and start buying this stuff and start you know preserving it and thinking about passing it on to our children but also showcasing it um, it's an important way to connect to our heritage
0: Moessa, well, thank you very much uh, for thank your you, time. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. Is there anything you want to close with a closing thought, a piece of advice question
1: put me on the spot there but um, i um, I've really enjoyed this Thank you for doing this. Um, thank you for bringing together such an interesting collection of people um And I really enjoyed the long format of this, you know, allowed us to kind of explore thoughts a bit more carefully. Um, I guess I I, I have nothing profound to say towards the end of this, (laughs) but uh, except thanking you and, and we hopefully hope to see you again in the near future.
0: Inshallah, sounds good. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up.